I'm joined today by Mark Anderson, an old friend and longtime contributor to UKcolumn.org. And Mark, you're in southern Texas, uh, although you're from, I think, Michigan originally. So the first thing to do before we get into discussing your latest article for us as of May 2022, the article entitled Are Cars Being Slyly Phased Out, which is in the One World Governance series on the UK Column website. Why don't you tell us something about where you come from, your life experience and how you got in touch with UK Column? Yeah, I've been a journalist, Alex, for 35 plus years. Uh, I started working for weekly and daily newspapers in Michigan and Indiana. Uh, it all started back in the mid 80s. I was a working musician up till then full time, and that became a little frustrating, a bit of a dead end. I'm still a drummer by trade and songwriter, but I got into journalism at that time, and I was originally a photographer, actually. And I still miss film photography. Digital photography is a little weird sometimes. But long story short, uh, once I worked for the Southwestern Michigan Berrien County Record, I moved up to the South Bend, Indiana Tribune as a daily reporter uh, in the area of Notre Dame there in uh, Indiana. Just and by the by, have you ever rubbed shoulders with E. Michael Jones, who is of the same Indiana city? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, he and I have tea once a year, approximately. Yeah, I, I visit Mike a lot. Yeah, he, he's a very insightful guy, very courageous. And he knows uh, Pete Buttigieg, the current transportation secretary, very deeply in ways oh, that yes. Buttigieg, Buttigieg was, was Im imposed as uh, city mayor of South Bend, wasn't he, over the heads of the local Republican Party? <laughs> That's another story in itself, and I won't burden uh, listeners with that. Um, but at any rate, um, Oh, it must have been right around 1990, I was clued into the larger establishment, the power behind the throne, if you will. That's a bit of a cheap phrase like deep state, but hey, it works. At, at any rate, uh, once I clued into that, uh, there began to be a conflict with my conventional reporting for mainstream publications and wanting to get into the deeper thicket of things. But I, I maneuvered around it for a little while. I wrote for the New American Magazine. I used to be American Opinion, and uh, that, that got me in touch with covering, for instance, Mikhail Gorbachev speaking at a community college in Michigan about the Gorbachev Foundation when he was living at the Presidio in San Francisco. Uh, some people were not very comfortable with that, particularly American conservatives. But um, one thing led to another, and uh, I went in and out of weekly papers and being a columnist for daily papers, all, all conventional stuff in uh, Southwest Michigan, Indiana, and so on. But then um, as I learned more about the machinations of the world and the way things really worked, uh, I gravitated toward um, freelance work. And eventually in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, right around 2007, I started working for American Free Press. And before long, I was helping Jim Tucker cover the Bilderberg Group. So in a matter of 10 or 15 years, I went from covering school board meetings and city council meetings to covering the Bilderberg Group. So you can imagine that was a pretty dramatic change. That's and fascinating I... because you, you come from the, the Great Lakes cultural region of the states. And for those less familiar with uh, the, the central states of the USA, uh, a big industrial uh, area, but full of cornfields as well. Very, very diverse because there was huge Polish, Lithuanian and, and Irish immigration to the cities there, leaving it a strong, conscientious Catholic area. Uh, a lot of Dutch reformed came in as well. And um, there's 
all kinds of heritage is there, but would it be fair to say, and I made a mistake a moment ago, I should have said that Buttigieg is a Democrat, but would it be fair to say that the, the voting base there is old style Democrat, like conscientious and in many cases Christian voters for the Democrat Party who are uh, increasingly disgusted by globalism? For the most part, yes. And then there's a lot of independents and, and Republicans. Uh, the current Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, is a very sorry and sad uh, exception to what you just said, Alex. Uh, she's a far left, far left internationalist, uh, heavy socialist Democrat, a Marxist, really. And uh, that, that's been an unfortunate turn there. But um, Michigan has been kind of a hotbed of reform. You know, the radio priest, Father Coughlin, pushed for monetary reform there in East Michigan, in Royal Oak near Detroit back in the 1930s. And even now, um, uh, Michigan is suspected of having a far right element in the thumb area. Uh, that the governor is really worried about. And she trumped up some um, claim that a militia tried to uh, kidnap her. A lot of people don't even believe the story, but we won't go off into the weeds on that stuff. But uh, uh, yeah, then I moved to South Texas to get, give you kind of broad brushstrokes in ar around 2008, let's say 2009. And now I live near the Southern border and uh, as of around May 23rd, and as we speak, it's around May 18, May 19, um, May 19, uh, they're, they're dropping the Title 42 CDC health rule under which they could deport or repel a lot of people trying to illegally enter the U.S. southern border. But now uh, there's a big concern among border security and border defense advocates that there's going to be a, a mad onrush of illegal aliens as of just about a week from now. So and um, you're, you're unafraid to use this politicized phrase illegal aliens because these are simply straightforward objective words, aren't they? Alien, Latin alienus, somebody from another place. Yeah, you know? it's not and illegal, somebody who doesn't have a passport and a visa. So there's, there's nothing really controversial about calling these people illegal aliens, whether you major on the fact that they've been instrumentalized by coyotes or whatever or, or, or voting fraud or whether you think that they're chances, you know, they are illegal aliens. Right. It's not a pejorative. A lot of people think it's a pejorative. It's just it's just a word. It's just a way of describing them. And here in South Texas, that's just the way it's described. But so I'm in the path of that. I cover a lot of border stuff, uh, including Donald Trump when he was here recently. Uh, Air Force Two, his helicopter flew right over my house, literally going from the Harlingen Airport in Cameron County to a border area here in Hidalgo County. So I um, and I also still have congressional um Pips, you might say, a congressional um, uh, credentials to cover Congress in person. I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only alternative media person in the writing realm that has those credentials. Um, I'm pretty sure there's some maybe alternative uh, videographers in there. I'm not sure, but before, I've managed to maintain those those credentials, and it has not been easy. Um, before we get too off track in this brief broadcast, I have to ask this then, Mark. Do you think that for all the diversity in the new media, the free alternative media, however you wish to call it, for all the quality of and life, life experience, we are perhaps a little short on credentialed journalists? I know there's shortcomings to getting diplomas these days, but people actually with the old style press card, no longer in a pork pie hat, but um, that kind of uh, beat behind them. I, I think we sometimes feel the lack of such people. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. Uh, it's not easy because there's a marginalization that's been going on even before January 6th, that big watershed event um, on Capitol Hill there. Uh, 
uh, fighting over the election and and that this marginalization they're trying to squeeze alternative people out of the media altogether and and make us uh put us in some sort of ghetto digital and otherwise but um yeah i i'd managed to hang in there and 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 keep my head up and uh and you know do the what i think is proper reporting so um uh, you, you guys at UK Column are, do the same thing and um, very professional. So this is a great combination. And oh, you mentioned UK Column. Yeah, I, I've known Mike Robinson since about 2009, 2010. And I, I used to have him on my radio show on RBN. And um, then pretty soon he returned the favor and I began to appear on UK Column occasionally. So that's how I got to know him and Brian. Very, very intriguing. And this is a good uh, segue for us to plunge into the piece are cars being slyly phased out currently on the home page of ukcolumn.org and I'll start towards the end there Mark because you were talking about physically and psychologically zoning the dissidents um, paying lip service to the first amendment and equivalent in other countries um, by saying of course we have freedom of speech and the place you can do it is right over there I know this has physical forms in national parks already. The, the park service in the U.S. often says you have free speech, but it's right at the back of these woods. You know, uh, and if you do it anywhere else, we might arrest you. Uh, Jack Straw, when he was British Home Secretary, suggested the same. Uh, there will always be places where people can speak their minds. Hint, not in front of Parliament. Right. So you are talking about this uh, becoming a reality on the ground for where you're allowed to live and work. And people who haven't followed communist societies close to will perhaps not be so aware that this was the daily reality in Soviet and other communist cities, uh, that the dissidents were, were given, you know, a, a sector at the back of the city and menial jobs, um, because they were, you know, the, the ideologically correct were meant to be showcased to the rest of the citizenship. Now, anyway, your paragraph is, and it begins with the word moreover, but of course, that's a link with the foregoing. So I'll just start with the next word. Will unvaccinated people be segregated on the buses? You mean of the, the new 15 or 20 minute city. And the, the idea, of course, is everything has to be within 15, 20 minutes walk. And as Scottish born citizen journalist Neil Foster speculated in correspondence with me, that's Mark Anderson, might habitation zones arise from which those defined as health dissidents or political undesirables won't be allowed to leave, save with special permission. And then I editorialized by adding uh, the rest of this paragraph, because I thought it was well in sync with what you wrote, I continued the paragraph. Brian Gerrish has recalled in past UK column news broadcasts that dystopian as it may seem, this very vision for the future was being discussed in terms within Plymouth City Council. That's Plymouth, Devon, England in the early 2000s. What do you have to say to that, Mark? Well, first of all, it's interesting, Alex, that it was discussed that long ago in a typical British city, Plymouth. Um, when I uh, read that addendum, I was surprised to see that. And, and, um, but it's very good that you put that in there to inform the people. These things have been percolating for a long time, just like high technology, when the, when the globalists and their think tanks, I call the think tanks the kitchens of the new world order. When the globalists and their think tanks roll this stuff out, you can bet they've been thinking about it for a long time. Just like when you see high-tech gadgets, that, just, that didn't happen overnight. There's been a developmental evolution there, and it, you know a lot of things are rolled out at a certain time. But that, I think, Alex, is the ultimate goal or ultimate place where these 15-minute cities, aka global cities, will lead. It, it only makes sense that people would end up being sequestered according to vaccination status, 
uh, political beliefs. Uh, that might vary depending on who the mayor is. It might uh, vary depending on ultimately what kind of rules they make. But at the very least, I think we need to put up a warning sign along the road here and say, this is where likely this is heading, you know, almost like bridge out, right? You might not want to go there. And so we in the alternative media put all these possibilities out there because we have to give the readers and viewers and listeners all the potential things that might happen. And then we explore things along the way and see where they lead. But this would not, as you say, there's historical precedent to this in communism. This would not be a surprising or unexpected development for 15-minute cities, which are a particular kind of global cities. So we've spoken to a very different kind of American um, analyst to you in, in background, but um, similar in others, namely Joel Skousen in Utah. And uh, he has come to the analytical conclusion on the very big scale that communism is a junior partner to or a tool of globalism. I did a full uh, interview with Joel Skousen. Uh, if you search for the word globalism or Skousen, S-K-O-U-S-E-N, using the search yeah. function magnifying glass on UK column org, you will find it. Um, you are similarly well-placed, well-rounded um, uh, a figure to talk about this, Mark, because modest as you are, you have been second to none in sleuthing what globalist think tanks have been up to for decades, including when it was still local to you, the uh, much more important than it sounds, Chicago Council on Foreign Relations in arguably America's central node of, of dirty corruption around Chicago. So you've seen a lot of this firsthand. Would you endorse or, or nuance what Joel Skousen says there, that communism is not the ultimate plot for world unification? Um, I would nuance it a little bit. Um... Monopoly capitalism and communism are much closer to each other than we think. In one, the state is the central driver. In the other, corporate powers which control the state are the central driver. But basically, they're two sides of the same coin, and they're false alternatives. Uh, the powers that be these days, as you know, Alex, they give us false alternatives. Well, if you don't like door number one, pick door number two, but don't talk about door number three. And it's this quite telling that I mistakenly called Buttigieg a Republican because America's, I think, even worse than Britain, and that takes some doing. I should say England these days because in England is electorally still pure first past the post, right? Um, America's even more extreme in its bipartisanship. Third party candidates, uh, okay, Nader got a look in uh, in the 90s briefly uh, and was some kind of, you know, kingmaker candidate. But other than that, the Constitutional Party, a, a host of others, don't even get on the ticket, let alone airtime uh, in, in the mainstream media, do they? Right. The way it works, and I, I knew Bill Moore, who just passed away from the Michigan Constitution Party. I've known a lot of those guys a long time and been to a lot of their meetings, including just a couple of years ago. Um, the way it works is the dominant party set up the rules for ballot access. And one of the rules is you have to have a certain number of votes um, to maintain the ballot access that you've already achieved. And if you don't get enough votes, you'll lose the ballot access. Well, they'll set it up so you generally don't get enough votes. So you're constantly trying to get on and stay on the ballot. Therefore, you can't really campaign and raise the funds you want. In shorthand, that's how they do it. I see. And this is exactly the same kind of thing uh, in election monitoring language. This would be called um, unduly high. Uh, thresholds, five, seven percent in some former Soviet countries for uh, access to a parliament or a city assembly. This kind of thing is exactly what uh, clubs of which the US is a founder member, like the OSCE, 
um, uh, criticise other countries for, you know, the, a, a lack of diversity in electoral failings. Uh, in fact, in your own current state of Texas, uh, there have been cases of OSCE election monitors coming from other member states, such as Hungary, turning up at a local ballot box in Texas, whether for a presidential or a school board election or anything in, be in between, and being told by the sheriff or whoever's running the election, you're not coming in here, I don't care what's in the uh, OSCE undertakings. They might actually be right constitutionally, because uh, if it's not a treaty ratified by two thirds of the Senate, um, the uh, executive is not bound by it locally and that's before we get onto state rights but we're digressing too far we must get back to uh, your excellent piece and i will continue reading where we were because towards the end you write about the 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 timely aspect of this the forthcoming october summit which is your final heading you write about a triennial world mayor's summit it still calls itself c40 although at the very end of the piece you shock us that there are now just shy of 100 members of c40 no longer for uh, 40 cities it's a, uh, the new normal. It's a hybrid in-person slash virtual event. So with my other hat on as a conference interpreter, I can imagine that's going to be a nightmare to arrange. But it's going to be held uh, in person and online from the 19th to the 22nd of October this year, 2022. And they're talking about bringing together, the nomenclature is so telling here, mayors of world-leading cities alongside business leaders, global influencers, philanthropists, campaigners, youth leaders, a term which to me sounds like uh, it's more at home in the church, scientists and residents. Oh yes, right at the end of the, the, the line is, is a few local residents to, to say their piece. What are they going to do? According to the blurb, they're going to showcase the work cities are doing to deliver effective climate solutions and to demonstrate mm -hmm. what a strong global coalition united on radical climate action can achieve. Mark, how and when and why did this become the business of your municipal council instead of your constitutional national government? <laughs> well, Alex, if you'll if you'll indulge me, I wrote a short um, kind of narrative that I'll I'll read in in shorthand form here. But the the short answer right up front is the fifteen minute cities thing, where as you said, is about the idea that you'd eliminate cars in the in the cores of our major cities. And then by bicycle and by foot, everything, all the amenities, your job, everything you'd want to do or know is within approximately 15 minutes walk or cycle ride. That's what 15 minute cities means. But that's just a species of global cities. And all of it is based on climate change. And climate change, of course, is an environmental lever. It's leverage to get people to do a certain thing. If they couldn't invoke climate change, then how could they say, well, let's get rid of all the cars, right? They have to have something that, well, this will get rid of all the exhaust and the, you know, uh, the, the exhaust pipes of the cars and there'll be fewer emissions and climate change is the reason. Therefore, we can justify 15-minute cities, right? That's the, that's the rationale for it. But I was thinking back before the show today, uh, Alex, and I was thinking back to my coverage as a reporter over the years. And first they had to create rationales to get people out of the countryside. And going back to at least, let's say 20 years ago, when I was working for uh, a Indiana Daily and an affiliated Michigan Weekly, right on the border there of those two states, I went to some meetings about land trusts. Now in the American system, land trusts are where individuals, but more often tax exempt 
foundations and, and environmental organizations will declare a river watershed or some other sensitive land, quote unquote, as too sensitive for human habitation, too sensitive for human development, and they'll put the land into trust. Now, that can be very significant acreage, and the land then is taken off the tax rolls. Get that. So none of that land is contributing one dime to the schools, to paving the roads, to paying your sheriff, or anything. And then that ethos, that way of thinking, um, kind of cultivates the idea that, you know, uh, people can be a blight on the land, that, that having an absence of human, humanity on land is a good thing. It's the mentality of noblesse oblige, uh, of guardianship, isn't it? It's the kind of feudalism yeah. that, frankly, you Americans rightly rebelled against, using actually your British heritage to do so. Yeah, so but it, so it's come back. The, the, the global commons, the term we're now used, uh, being told to, to listen out for, particularly in Whitney Webb's and Ian Davis's material, this global co uh, commons uh, wheeze is, is being brought to bear. This, this stuff is too good for you humans to touch it. That Normal rules and constitutional history and experience don't apply here. Uh, and the money's different. It, it, it's, exactly. it's funny money. So you, you typically have public partnerships, PPPs, the local county government municipalities within the watershed or within the county of the watershed will have a partnership with um, the, uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund or, or uh, some of the other major environmental organizations, which incidentally will have a lot of connections with oil companies who they claim to be enemies of. And at any rate, that's one way that people are driven out of rural living. And then if you step back and look at the supply chain issue real quick, which is real big these days, they're talking about potential food shortages. Well, the supply chain system itself has always been the problem. COVID or no COVID, this or, or you know whatever other factors they wanna bring in, COVID lockdowns, the global supply chain inherently is a bad idea, uh, especially when it comes to perishables and feeding the people, okay? Uh, food should always be a local and regional thing in terms of the shortest possible distance between dinner plate and the field where the food is grown. And the global supply chain system is a natural outgrowth of what the Rockefeller interests and the Nixon administration um, negotiated with Mao's China back in 1972 when they began to get the ball rolling on what I call global zoning. And that's really what it is. Uh, China will be the manufacturing center. Uh, America will be uh, deprived of uh, its manufacturing prowess and that will be reduced and it will become a bedroom or hospitality country, a service economy. Again, Br Britain has seen this since the Second World War. Depending on your political bent, we've been told that some kind of Fourth Reich or some Chinese communist plot uh, and in both cases, there's some substantiation of this that people have said it from within those circles has labeled Britain as just a tourist country, not allowed to be prosperous and industrious anymore. Often American corporatism has been blamed in Britain for this tendency, but it's it's definitely there, you know, global zoning. And again, within the communist bloc, which I think we now firmly understand was driven by the city of London and Manhattan from beginning to end, there was this uh, zoning of republics, you know, so um, uh, all the aluminium tubing uh, necessary for toothpaste and all kinds of other things uh, within the Soviet Union was put in one republic uh, in one city, Rustavi in Georgia. And so Russia itself mm. had no aluminium tubing production for a few years in the 1990s, as far as I understand. So this, this has a long history uh, of, of central planning. Is that what we're really up against? Central planners who think they know better? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the global zoning that only certain parts of the world can manufacture, other parts of the other countries and all that are discouraged from doing significant manufacturing and all the dynamics you just mentioned. Yeah, it, it all goes towards central control. And the global cities thing where they talk about localism or local control is extremely deceptive. They themselves, uh, former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, head of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, Evo Dalder, who's a former U.S. envoy to NATO, they talk about, you know, how there's going to be more local control, but then they'll use terms like globalism. Uh, these terms will pop up at their meetings, some of which I covered in person over the years. And what they're really getting at is kind of devolving where the authority comes from, but it, it will be no less centrally controlled. In, in fact, it'll be even more centrally controlled, but it'll be a little bit more horizontal, not quite so vertical. But that doesn't really matter. Um, the in the U.S. Republic um, system, the the states created the federal government, but the municipalities and the counties within a state, Texas, Michigan, wherever, are creatures of the state. And so just a, a sidebar here: in the Commonwealth, whether it's Britain or another English-speaking Commonwealth country, ultimately you'll find this in major cities that uh, you have a royal charter and city rights going back to the age of Magna Carta. And we're just starting to find that you can get away with a lot more as a city on the basis of having a direct royal charter uh, than you can through going through the route of statutory and then county and then uh, district and city governments. So it, it seems this is this is a guise which has, has many different forms around the world, uh, that a city can say we are in some way independent of our national constitution and chain of authority. That's right. And different people within the globalist global cities movement have slightly different perspectives, to be accurate. Uh, Evo Dalder, the one I mentioned, who heads up the Chicago Council, he's very militant about cities taking on national powers. In fact, he went to Chatham House in February of 2018 specifically to attend a meeting there where the question was, should cities have diplomatic powers? And the question seemed to be answered with the answer yes as far and as this I isn't just theory is it mark because the whole of medieval history in europe was that particularly in the renaissance era you know and uh, you know as far back as the bronze age you had city states doing petty diplomacy uh, in this way uh, but the, the, the modern world has has not been told explicitly that cities can can do diplomacy with each other and sign treaties or repudiate the treaties that the, the national government of their country has signed yeah, one example that, that's kind of rough-edged would be um, um, Libby Schaff, the Oakland, California mayor. She uh, was hiding and basically um, covering for illegal aliens who had uh, went into her, her city, and uh, U.S. Customs and Border Enforcement was after them to uh, detain them and deport them, and she was actively tipping them off and hiding them and acting as an accomplice to uh, thwart federal law in terms of immigration enforcement. And she turned up at a Chicago council meeting. So some of these mayors can get quite radical in thumbing their nose at national authority. And this is not to say national authority is, you know, without flaws, of course not. But there's, there's definitely a radicalism uh, to this where mm -hmm. uh, prop, proper federal enforcement is thwarted and evaded even. It's not just cities, although largely in the U.S., uh, model, it would be cities uh, that are trying this on or their governments. Uh, right. It can be any sub-national unit. 
So in exactly. the post-devolution United Kingdom, with its asymmetrical federalization that we've undergone since Tony Blair, you will find that entire nations within the United Kingdom, notably Wales, have governments which now say we are subnational. we have a different ethos than the United Kingdom government at Westminster. Wales is a sanctuary nation. They got the terminology from certain California and Texas cities. I don't know whether there's many in Texas, but certainly a string of California cities have told the police never to, to touch illegal immigrants in, in known places of, of, of residence and work. But the, the, the key there is, however big or small the entity, and, and it can get pretty big, like Wales is a few million people on a substantial territory, the, the, the fiction that's maintained is because we have a layer of government here that's not the national government, we have policy and policy allegedly can override the whole of history, constitutionality and lawfulness. Yeah, so people might be deceived. Well, uh, Wales goes its own way and now we have more nation states. So doesn't that mean there's more local control? Not if the uh, changes that happen um, step outside the constitutional order and join a global order. See, it's a matter of their their allegiance, if you will. And so uh, if, the, if, if you have a bunch of nation states or a bunch of blocks of nation states, what matters is the ideas under which they live, right? A nation isn't just a piece of soil with people on it. They live according to principles. They live according to a certain idea of what it means to be free and prosperous. So if these nations change their... Their, econo their economic and political direction and join with some sort of global club, then it, what looks like decentralization actually can be more centralization. Well, David Scott, our Scottish correspondent, has pointed this out very sharply, that it was US-based but really globalist affiliation think tanks uh, that leaned upon the Scottish government after it came into being in the late 90s to go this way, particularly in its educational policy. Yeah, so it's, it's perception... It's allegiance, as you say, and it, the the extra centralization that comes in is that you might have you might have apparently a hundred flowers blooming and all these U.S. cities and uh, and counties going their own way, but if they're all reading off a script provided by and recruiting staff trained by two and a half globalist outfits, ultimately uh, Chatham House maybe at the pinnacle or the CFR, uh, you've ended up with less diversity, haven't you? Right, and now the World Economic Forum, as we've heard, and Canada is an example has begin, begun to worm its way into the cabinets of different governments. And so now people, especially younger people, are being schooled by the World Economic Forum and then getting jobs in government bureaucracies, get, getting jobs or positions in government cabinets. So there's where the centralizing ideas come along, regardless of how many, you know, the, the numerical count of how many nations are involved. But um, yeah, it, that that's the thing. Where is the ages of control what is the controlling idea who does it come from what does it consist of these are the questions to ask it certainly got very little to do with ideology in the traditional sense mark has it because in your piece in two consecutive paragraphs you have mentioned two of the larger than life characters who have been london mayors since what the americans would call a metro mayor came into existence for greater london again in the uh, the blair era one is a hard left old left man ken livingston and the other is very much a new Labour uh, radical centrist, Sadiq Khan, both nominally Labour Party, although Livingston got kicked out in the end. Uh, but how is it that men of, of, of totally different political backgrounds can both be cheerleading for, in the subject of your piece here, the 15-minute city, uh, based on the, the idea of uh, having a nicer climate uh, within the city? 
Right, exactly. That suggests there's one overarching controlling mechanism to which both men have had to answer. And that's very perceptive of you. I didn't know enough about the other mayor besides uh, Sadiq Khan. But yeah, um, whatever, whatever their beliefs might be, once they get into those positions, it appears that they have to obey and abide by the, uh, the ruling global power, um, which manifests itself in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. Um, that would explain why there's this one-size-fits-all worldview Everybody, it seems, that gets into government now. Here, even here in Donna, Texas, Alex, a city of about 14,000 on the border, briefly, um, me and a friend discovered about th two, three years ago that they were in deep with the Wilson Center for International Studies, run by former C California Congresswoman Jane Harmon, who was heavily involved in passing the Patriot Act post 9-11. And so even a lot of these southern border cities have uh, at least put one foot, if not both feet, in the global club, currying favor with the uh, East Coast establishment in, in the United States, in this case, the Wilson Center, which is part of this panoply of think tanks, the Brookings Institution, the CFR, the Chicago CFR, uh, the Atlantic Council, which is basically a NATO intel arm. Um, they're all one big happy club. So now, all of a sudden, these border cities start spouting the same philosophy about the border. Uh, let them in, let them in. Don't have border security. You know that, that takes some doing as a, as a psychological operation, doesn't it, Mark? To persuade people uh, along the border, you've got all kinds of people there—the old Chicanos and ranchers and and all the newcomers uh, who are seeing the daily misery inflicted, actually mainly on these illegal immigrants more than by the illegal immigrants. To persuade them that they are not seeing what they're seeing and and. Uh, well, as you described, it's, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity uh, to, to welcome these, these new communities. I mean, you've, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but, but how is that trick pulled off on what to outsiders is, is really salt of the earth types uh, you know, in South Texas who, who probably you know, have, have got their own arms, uh, grow their own food, have got generations of background in the same place. How have they been persuaded to view the world through globalist goggles? Well, it's mostly through the mass media cartel, the sob stories. Yes, there, you know, there's, there's sympathy for those that are forced over the border by coyotes and human traffickers and, and those that are in the cartels or are scouts for the cartels. It's mostly through the media. They, they create this kind of emotionalism to where you can't have a rational discussion about these things, uh, to look out for the landowners along the border, to look out for the average American citizen, to have sufficient border defense, and, and don't allow all that labor that, that labor force from Central and South America, don't allow them in large numbers to come here. Why? Because then Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador and parts of Mexico will lose their most able-bodied young men and women. And then their economies will suffer. The idea is to, is to send diplomats there and help rebuild those countries just as we improve the defense and economy of ours. The only thing I'll add um, in the short time we have left, Alex, is that ultimately where all this leads, uh, getting people off the land through land trusts and through, you know, uh, cultivating the idea that uh, humanity belongs in stack and pack cities, that stack and pack cities, 15 minute cities, global cities are the, are the wave of the future. It involves basically three things. Dispossession, dispossess people of real land ownership through taxes, land trusts and all these machinations immobilization, you know, get them into cities and kind of control their movements. 
And there's also a predestination element where all of this is meant to look inevitable. And that's one of the great psychological tools of this world, world government movement is to make all of this appear basically inevitable, uh, unstoppable. There's nothing you can do but become the lumpen proletariat of the new world order, a possibly in a habitation zone like we, just, like we started our discussion with. But that's, that's what it is. And then your, your mayors and your uh, uh, local officials become the commissars or viceroys in the global city system. They're not a conventional mayor anymore. There's something else. And that I would conclude with, that's the ultimate form of election fraud because we don't elect mayors and city councilmen to be uh, globalists or global agents. Uh, we don't elect them to do that, right? We don't elect city councilmen to be internationalist spokesmen or, or global manipulators or anything like that, or to run our cities and towns with some other kind of constitutional order or some other kind of uh, principles that are alien to our own constitutions. So that's the ultimate election fraud. Is, is global cities and this whole reorientation of the powers of local officials. Mark Anderson, thank you very much indeed, and we look forward to your next article for us.